follow along as I read for us Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And Jesus answered them and said, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Last week, we looked at the focus of Matthew. Overall, we know this to be true, is who is Jesus Christ? That's the question uh, that he is trying to answer. Who is Jesus Christ? And the evidence that he gave us was in verses one, or chapters 1 through 10. It was almost as if he was an a attorney in a courtroom bringing in witness after witness. And we went through all that in previous studies. Well, now in chapter 11, he begins a new focus. And he's not any more necessarily just giving evidence of who Christ is, the Messiah, the Son of God, the living one um, who brings salvation to the world. That's not his focus so much as he adds to that and he says, now I want to know what your response is to the evidence that I gave you. And so he's looking at different responses in chapters 11 through chapters 12. And last week we began the first response, that of doubt. Some people hear the truth and immediately their hearts go to the response of doubt. There's also the response of criticism, indifference, rejection, amazement, blasphemy, and fascination. All those, believe it or not, are negative responses. And Christ lists them that way. And we'll be looking at those in the coming weeks. But right now we're focused on the first one, the response of doubt. And we looked at the subject of doubt. And it's kind of interesting that whenever the New Testament talks about doubt, we found out that it's always talking about who? Believers. It always refers to believers. Only one time does doubt ever refer to someone who is not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's always referring to believers. And we, we studied how the idea that, you know what, you have to believe something before you can doubt it. Isn't that true? I mean, you have to have faith in something before you can lose that faith. And so the idea of doubt is focused primarily in the New Testament toward believers. And there's many verses that we can look at over and over again where we're instructed not to doubt as believers. God gives us that. Christ gives us that. The the epistles give us that throughout. And that word doubt basically means to be suspended in air. Kind of like you're just, you know, like a, just suspended. We get the English word meteor from that original word. And so here we find ourselves in the beginning of chapter 1, and we see that Jesus had finished commanding his 12 disciples. He taught them everything that they needed to know, and he's sending them out on a missionary journey for a couple weeks. This isn't the ultimate sending out, as we find out a little later on in Matthew, when he sends them out all by themselves, totally by themselves, and he's off the earth, he's gone. This is just kind of a short-term mission for them. He's taught them basically everything they need to know, and he's sending them out and saying, hey, you know what, here's, here's what you need to go do, now go do it. And like any good leader, he doesn't just kick back in a recliner and, and turn on the TV and, and watch the whatever, you know, uh, Galilean soccer match or whatever. I don't know what he would watch, but he doesn't do that. He says, you know what, as a leader, I've got I to be an example. So I'm going to go out as well. 
on my own. And so here we see Jesus not ministering with the twelve anymore. He's ministering all by himself. He's ministering alone. And it says he departed from there. And he went to teach and to preach in the cities, in the Galilean cities around the Sea of Galilee there. And those are the twofold ministry of Jesus, teaching and preaching. Jesus taught, he exposited the scripture as they did in the synagogues in those days. They would stand up and they would read a portion of the Old Testament and then the rabbi would expound on it. That's exactly what we do today. Expository teaching. We teach through the Word of God. And I don't know about you, but I really like that simply because if I don't get finished this week, you know what? I just continue next week. Because we know where we're going. It's the next verse. I don't have to stand up here and make some clever little outline or whatever for you to understand. We're going through God's Word systematically. And that's so important. I believe that it's, it's really not done enough today in a lot of churches. But he taught. But he also preached. He proclaimed. And so... That was his ministry. Um, the teaching is the explaining of the message. The proclaiming was really the announcing of the message. The kingdom is going to come. And he also continued with the miracles, as we had noted. Um, but John, it says, when John had heard, in verse 2, in prison, remember, John's in prison because he basically called Herod uh, what he was to his face. And, and Herod, you don't do that. And so uh, he had been an adulterer and, and uh, taken uh, a wife of another man and, and so forth. And so John the Baptist was very bold in his preaching. And he just went right into the, the, uh, the, the Herod's presence and said basically what was the truth. And because he was greatly offended by that, he threw, they threw him in jail. They threw him in prison. And it wasn't just a nice little, uh, you know, prison like we have today. It was basically a hole, a pit. And um, if you're somebody like John the Baptist who's used to be out in the wilderness and you love your freedom and you're out there proclaiming, working for God and everything, that's the last place you want to end up is a confined space in a dark cell that smells and has little light and you can't see outside. It was probably miserable. But we do know that he had access to his disciples because it says there that when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples. So apparently they were able to go to prison and minister to him, kind of like we have you know, prison visits today when you go see someone in jail. And they asked two questions. First of all, they asked, are you the coming one or do we look for another? First question was, are you the coming one? Are you for sure the Messiah? That's what John wanted to know. And we're going to get into the, the reason why he was questioning that today. Or do we look for another? And we're going to look at that a little further on. And basically, Jesus answers him and says, Hey, go tell John these things. That you go tell him everything you've seen, everything you hear. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached. See, those are all elements of the kingdom. That's what will happen in the kingdom. So basically what Christ is doing, he's giving him just a short preview. It's like when you go to the movies and you're sitting there before the movie and you see all these previews of upcoming movies. You know, they give you just enough to pique your interest. You know, and that's kind of what Jesus is doing here. He's giving them a preview. And in the end of the verse 6 there, he basically gives them... Basically, it's kind of a, a warning or a beatitude. He says, blessed is he who is not offended, is not scandalized, is the word scandalon, because of me. In other words, don't doubt because of, of me, is what Christ is saying. 
And so we went over last week the reasons why such a great man as John the Baptist would have ever doubted. And the first reason we gave was because of his circumstances. That sometimes, even today in our lives, because of our difficult circumstances which we're facing, we're thrust into the the belief of doubt. We begin to doubt God. We begin to doubt God's plan. Because things aren't working out the way we want them to, all of a sudden, we begin to doubt everything we believe. Because of difficult circumstances. And John was having a difficult time of it. I mean, he was in prison. He'd never been in prison before. Think about it. He had been probably the greatest prophet up to his day. Doing exactly what God told him to do. When God told him to do it. To whom God told him to to do it to. I mean, he spoke the truth of God. He was the forerunner of Christ. There was no pride in this man. It says that, you know, basically he had a a, a weird appearance to himself. He had a weird appetite. I mean, you know, he ate honey and locusts, for goodness sake. I don't know if you've ever had locusts. I haven't. But that's not something that, you know, is on my top ten list to eat. It's funny because we were talking to Bob and Noby about possibly putting together a little missions trip next October to go down and actually be able to go to their village and visit with them uh, there in New Guinea. And so immediately, you know, the first question I would ask is, no, not what is there to eat? You got me all wrong. Is there a shower? Yes, that's number one on my list. If there's a shower on there, I don't care about the food. That's second, you know, doesn't bother me. And they, yes, they have a shower. I said, okay, I'll consider this. This would be good. So, uh, but I, I started watching Man vs. Wild on, on TV and I saw this one thing where he was down in the Panama jungle and he's climbing through this and it's hot and it's humid and there's bugs. And so I said, you know, I've got to record this. So when Bob comes back, they came back uh, Monday and stayed at our house a couple of days before they went off to the next church. I said, I've got to show him this and see just what it's like down there. I just want to know, you know, because I've heard all these stories about it. He's telling me all this stuff. And so I showed him this and he goes... Yes, it's just like that. And, and nobody said, it's just like that, but there's no cameras and there's no helicopter to come and get you. None of that. So it's, it's a lot harder than that. And I thought, okay, so we better start working out a little bit before we take our trip next October. But um, because it's, it's, it's a hard place to be. Well, John was basically doing everything that he was supposed to do. He was a humble man. He, he served the Lord out in the wilderness eating uh, locusts and honey. He did everything that God told him. That now he's sitting in prison. I mean, have you ever been in the stage in your life where you're doing everything right and all of a sudden you're in this major fix and you're thinking, how did I get here? And immediately you begin to doubt the plan of God because of the difficult circumstance in which you're in. Maybe you lose your job. Maybe you lose a loved one that's close to you. Maybe sickness, health issues, whatever it might be. Difficult circumstances come our way and they come our way for a purpose. God has a purpose in trials, we're told. But sometimes, unfortunately, they raise up that doubt in our lives. And John the Baptist was no different. As great a man as he was, he still struggled with doubt. Because he asked those two questions. Are you the one or are we supposed to look for another? So the first reason that John doubted was difficult circumstances. Secondly, was worldly influences. Worldly influences. See, it says there in verse 2, chapter 11, that John had heard. 
about the works of Christ while he was in prison. He heard what Christ was doing, and that confused him. That's what doubt is, really. It's a, it's a perplexity. It's, it's confusion. When confusion enters into your life, you begin to doubt the truths of God. And it confused John the Baptist because when he heard about the works of Christ, the things that Christ was doing, that didn't line up. It didn't parallel with what people thought the Messiah should do. Think about it. The Jewish people were waiting for their Messiah. They're under this, you know, taskmaster of Rome. And they got this yoke around their neck. They're basically slaves to the state. And they're thinking, hey, the Messiah is going to come. And what's the first thing he's going to do? He's going to take these Romans and just (laughs) make mincemeat out of them. And we're going to be free, free at last. That's what they thought. First, he'd knock off the Romans. He'd wipe them out and give Israel back their land. That was number one on their priority list. Secondly, they were thinking of kind of a welfare state. Hey, we're not going to have to work anymore. The Messiah is going to provide everything for us in the kingdom. Free food. This is going to be good. And if you doubt that, that's why in John chapter 6, you remember when Jesus performed the miracle and he fed the multitudes on the hillside. What they tried to do right after that miracle? They tried to make him what? King. In the same chapter. Because they thought, man, if this guy can feed this many people, we're going to have, this is going to be nice. And so they wanted a health, wealth, instant happiness kind of a Messiah. That's what they were looking for. And they thought all those wrongs that they were experiencing, all those difficult circumstances that they were experiencing, would just kind of vanish into a vapor immediately as soon as the Messiah was on task and on assignment. That was the existing expectation of what the Messiah would bring. In the case of John the Baptist, doubt was caused by worldly influence. You might say, well, what kind of worldly influence could he come under? He's in prison. See, he had become a victim of the thinking of his day, so much as we do sometimes. He sat in prison and he began to think, you know, it's not supposed to be this way. I mean, I understand what Jesus is doing out there. I'm hearing what he's doing, but things aren't lining up. I don't hear him overthrowing the Roman government. I don't hear him just making everybody happy and blessing everybody. I mean, was Jesus supposed to be walking around lowly and meekly and humbly and not really changing much of the environment of the day politically? And he probably thought, you know what? All those wrongs are still going on. All those injustices are still there that our people are suffering under. Sin is still everywhere. And he's supposed to be the Messiah? Hold on a second. It just wasn't the way it was supposed to be. And they knew Scripture. They knew Scripture and they would read Scripture and they say, when the Messiah comes and His kingdom comes, here's what's going to happen. And that's not what's happening around Jesus right now. Matter of fact, He's being rejected. A lot of bad things are happening. And it's very clearly the, the problem of the, his, the, the disciples themselves. I mean, they were fighting doubts about Jesus amongst the twelve. Because they had the same expectations of the Messiah that John the Baptist and the whole society had. And Jesus didn't live up to them. And so they were trying to figure out, is this guy for real? What's going on here? That's even why in in Acts 1, they, they kept on saying to him, is this the time you're going to bring the kingdom, Jesus? Is this the time you're going to bring the kingdom? And they kept on asking him that question because they thought, we don't see it yet. And he says to him for the millionth time, you know what? You're still asking the same silly question. 
It's not for you to know when the kingdom's going to come. Even after all those years, over in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, he says to his disciples, Have I been so long with you and you still do not know who I am? I mean, he ministered beside them. They saw incredible miracles and yet they still questioned who he was. They had these confused concepts that came from the world around them. And you know what? We're not much different than that. One of the interesting things that the, the Jews of the day believed is that it comes up in actually uh, Matthew chapter 16, a couple chapters to your right. When the Messiah would come into the world, before he arrived, there'd be a long succession of other guys. Before the Messiah would come. They believed that. A whole bunch of guys would come first, and then the Messiah would be the final one. That's why in Matthew 16, Jesus says to his disciples, Who do you say that I am? Remember, he asked them that question. And they said, Well, some say you're Elijah. Why would they say that? Because that's what they thought was going to happen. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you might be one of the prophets. They're they're, they're getting themselves set up for all this line of people, and then finally, at the end, the Messiah would come. And he asked, but who do you say that I am? And they replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. See, what did that reflect? It really reflected the current Jewish mindset of Jesus' day. A long string of people would come before the Messiah would. First Elijah, Jeremiah, a whole bunch of prophets, whatever it would be. Prophet of Deuteronomy 18. And finally, the Messiah would come. And so when Jesus didn't really do what John thought he was supposed to be doing, John began to think, you know what? I wonder if I got the right guy. (laughs) I mean, here I said he's the Lamb of God that takes away this. Maybe I got the wrong guy. Maybe I'm out of order here. Maybe he's still yet to come. Maybe I got one of these prophets that's to precede him. And he began to doubt his own ministry. So he asked that question, are you him? He asked to Christ, are you the Messiah or are we to look for someone else? That's why he asked that question. In other words, where are you in the line that we believe is going to happen? We believe the Messiah is last, but where are you? Are you the last guy or are you one of these other guys? Maybe I misspoke and you're not the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So he was affected by misinformation. The Jews expected the Messiah to be a certain thing and it wasn't turning out that way. So there's confusion. Jesus even said in Matthew 16, I'm going to go die. (laughs) Remember, I'm I'm going to go and I'm going to die. And what did Peter say? Oh, Lord, no way. It's not going to happen. You're not going to die. That's not in the plan. And Jesus had to say to his own disciple, get me behind the Satan. Right? You don't even know the plan, Peter. What are you talking about? See, they never understood it either. Disciples, and they ministered next to Christ all that time. On the night that Jesus was going to be betrayed and he was taken to be executed. What are they doing? They're sitting around and what are they arguing about? Who's going to be top dog in the kingdom? I mean, that's what they're arguing about, for goodness sakes. And their leader is going to his death. It just went right over their head. They looked right by it. When the Lord was taken prisoner, Peter was so disillusioned. The Bible says that he went out immediately and he began. He denied Christ three times one of his lead disciples. It didn't make sense to him how things were panning out. It didn't make any sense to Thomas. It didn't make any sense to those who were on the road to Emmaus. They're kind of moping around and saying, you know what, we thought he was the Christ. Remember? 
They become victimized by what people around them thought he should be. In fact, in John 10, 24, the Jews said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? Tell us who you are. Come on, Jesus, tell us who you are. And here's what he said to them. I told you who I was. Obviously, you weren't listening. See, they weren't on the same frequency. They were dialed in. They were just on a different frequency. They were expecting something totally different. He was saying it over and over and over, but their expectation was so different that they couldn't hear even what he was saying. And you know what? We face those same causes for doubt today. We really do. We doubt because we're perplexed by the plan of God. I think the world imposes that on us. Have you ever heard this question? If God is a God of love, why is the world so messed up then? Tell me that one. If Christ loves everybody so much, why do children die? Why do people starve or get diseases? Why is there war? Why is there death? If your God is so loving, why doesn't he just make things right in the world? Why is there so much injustice? If your God is so loving, why is he sending people to hell? See, they, they, they want to know, you know what? We'll tell you what kind of Christ we want. And if you can find one that fits our needs, well, then we'll believe. They want to make God in their own image. We see that all the time. How many times have you shared the gospel with somebody and they say, well, I don't, that, my God's not that way. You see, we can't allow ourselves as believers to become victimized by what is around us from the world. Because we'll begin to doubt just like they doubt. We end up saying, boy, I don't know. Look at my life. It's kind of messed up. And I'm serving God. I'm trying to do all this. Yeah, you know what? Why doesn't God do something? And we begin to question the plan of God in our own lives. If there's a God, why is there so many false religions? Why doesn't he just come and wipe them all out? And Christ will be standing. And then we'll all know that he's the way. See, when you start allowing the world to dictate to you what God is to be and what God is to do and what Christ is to do and what Christ is to be, you're going to begin to look at the Bible and you're going to begin to scratch your head and you're going to say, you know what? Yeah, I don't know. You're going to have doubts. That's why we always believe in going to the truth of the Word of God first. We don't go to our feelings. You know, we don't, we don't go, oh, I heard this, I heard that. No, we go to the Word of God. Show me chapter, verse, and I'll believe it. Because it doesn't change, as we sang this morning. I mean, God's truth, God's promises do not change. And so whenever you go to the world and you begin to hear what they're saying about God, if you listen to that voice enough, it's going to begin to influence doubt into your life. And that's worldly influence. That's why the Bible says, you know what, you better be careful who you get counsel from. Proverbs says that over and over and over again. You know, you don't just want to go to anybody for counsel concerning even your career, your marriage, your, your personal life, whatever it is. As a believer, you want to go to another believer who's able to sit down with the Word of God and explain to you how to fix maybe the problem you're in. I mean, even a lot of Christians end up spending, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on, quote, therapy. When sometimes all they need to know is, you know what, what am I doing wrong and what do I need to do to fix it? And God's word will speak to that. And so we need to always make sure that we're going to the Lord. Because, beloved, the world does not understand the plan of God. 
I watched an interview yesterday morning on Fox News, and uh, it was a child psychotherapist, this lady, and somebody from a conservative Christian group. And the whole issue was, recently there was a study released that said spanking one-year-olds causes them uh, harm later in life, and they'll become violent, and they do all these things. First thing that popped in my head is, who spanks a one-year-old? But anyway, so I'm thinking, okay. And so the whole thing was, well, does, you know, uh, uh, spare the rod, spoil the child. Obviously, that's out. Now this new truth is evolved, and so we got to grab, grab a hold of this. So they were interviewing this lady, and she said, well, the study says it's clearly spanking, you know, blah, blah, blah. And the other guy said, well, no, it says spanking a one-year-old. <laughs> Actually, the same study says from two-year-old and up, it actually has some positive reinforcement to change behavior. But she didn't address that. And she just continued to, to say how, you know, well, when you hit a child in anger, and the other guy's going, well, who says you got to hit a child in anger? That's not spanking. <laughs> spanking simply disciplining a child. You shouldn't do it in anger, as a matter of fact. And it, but this lady was just stuck on that. And so you can see where, you know, now people are going to look at that and say, oh, boy, we shouldn't spank our children because there's this stuff. And it's the advice of the world when the Bible says just the opposite, okay? And so we can't allow the world to dictate to us what God's truth is or what it says or what we believe and what we don't believe. The world does not know God. The world doesn't know His plan. They don't know Christ. They don't understand who He is. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man does not understand the things of God. And if you begin to let the world force you to think that Christ must be who they say He must be, then you're going to start doubting. And what's the solution? It's the solution that, that, that John the Baptist took. Go directly to God. Go to Him and explain this doubt. What you'll find when you go there, look at what it says. The text tells us, he says, you know what? Jesus answers the disciples and says, you go tell John the things which you hear and see. And over in Luke 7, it actually says that Jesus stopped and went and did a bunch of miracles. And he said, now you go tell John exactly what you just saw. He did them just for John the Baptist. And see, all those things that he lists there are things of the kingdom. He says, look, can't you see that I'm the one who's going to make things right? I'm the one who's reaching out to the poor. I'm the one that's going to reverse disease and death. Can't you see that? It's limited, yes, right now. Because we're not in the full-blown kingdom yet. It's limited by unbelief. It's limited by sin in the world. I'm just giving you a little preview of what's going to happen. Someday he will, in his kingdom, make all those things right. Reverse the curse, as we've talked about before. So these are previews of coming attractions, a taste of what Christ is going to do in the future. In Luke 7, the Jews said to him, where is the kingdom of God? You're the king and you talk about a kingdom, but what is it that you're doing about it? And he says, the kingdom of God is in your midst, but you just can't see it. That was Christ's answer to him. And he says to John, you know what? See all I can do. I can do all this. I can stop disease. I can give resurrection life to the dead. I can touch the poor. I can preach the good news to the hurting people. It's going to be right. Just trust me. The right timing and God's timing, everything's going to work out. See, negative circumstances make us doubt, but worldly influence also when it closes in around us and we begin to listen to other folks rather than the Lord and His Word, that causes us to doubt too. 
Thirdly, third influence here that we see that causes doubt not only in John's life but in ours is incomplete revelation. It says there in John uh, or Matthew uh, 11 verse 2 that John had heard. See, John had heard about Jesus and what was going on. His disciples had come back and they were kind of tracking Jesus as he did different things. They'd come back and they'd report to John the Baptist in prison and say, yep, now he did this. Oh, he did this miracle. He did that. But he doubted because he couldn't go out and see it himself. He was closed up in prison. He was just going on by what his disciples were telling him. And you know what? In a sense, that's a legitimate kind of doubt. I mean, if you don't see something and somebody tells you about something, you know, you may doubt whether it's true or not. There's nothing wrong with that. He didn't have the opportunity, like Peter, to be an eyewitness to his majesty. He didn't have the opportunity, as John did in 1 John, it says, 1-1, that they handled him with their hands. First hand, the Messiah. He didn't even have the more sure word of Scripture, which we have today. It wasn't written yet. So he didn't have complete revelation. There was a lot of pieces missing to the puzzle. And he was getting some stuff secondhand as a result of that. And so he says, you know what? I need some firsthand information. And the Lord said, okay, you need some firsthand information? I'll give you some. And that's where over in Luke 7, he just does a blast of miracles just for John. He says, here, you go tell John what you just saw. The Lord filled that space of doubt in John's mind where he needed a more complete revelation. And you say, well, how does that relate to us today? I mean, we have the Word of God, you know. Don't we have complete revelation? Do you know why a lot of people doubt? A lot of people doubt, not only because of negative circumstances, not only because of worldly influences, but a lot of people genuinely doubt because they just don't understand God's revelation. They don't get it. See, you have to know the facts. And what he's telling them is, go tell John the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. In other words, give them, give them the revelation, give them the manifestation of the kingdom. Tell them what I've done. I mean, sometimes I hear people say, you know what? I don't, I don't believe the Bible. I was sitting on the plane going back to Jacksonville, Phoenix to Jacksonville, and there was a lady next to me on the right. And uh, she began to talk, and so we began to talk, and pretty soon I had the opportunity to, to witness this lady for like three hours. She just kept on asking questions, and I kept on telling her stuff. And, and it was just interesting to me because every time I would tell her a truth from the Word of God, she would say, well, yeah, I believe that, but... I don't believe we take the Bible literally. So you believe it's God's word, but you don't want to take it literally. Well, yeah. And then she'd reason why. You know. Or she'd say, I said, well, do you believe that, that Jesus is God? Oh, yeah. Do you believe that Jesus would lie? Never. Well, here's what Jesus said about himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. She goes, well, I don't believe that. <laughs> so I showed her. She goes, Jesus says, yeah, Jesus said that. Well, that's fine, but, you know, I just believe that there's many ways to God. I said, yeah, but how can you say that when you just said, so Jesus is lying? No, I'm not saying he's lying. He would never lie. I said, right. And she was from the Catholic faith, so we had some things in common, so we were talking about a lot of different things. But you know what? I asked her this question. I said, 
do you have a Bible? Oh, yeah, I have a Bible. I said, have you read it? Um, well, what do you mean? I said, well, have you read the Bible? Have you read the Bible, like, cover to cover? Oh, no, no, no. I've read parts of it. Sometimes, you know, if I'm down and out or whatever, or I've turned to something. Or... And I said, well, how do you know you shouldn't take it literally? Well, what do you mean? I said, well, why don't you read it for yourself? I mean, wouldn't you do that with any other book? I mean, why would you criticize a book if you never read it? That just doesn't make any sense. It's silly. Silly reasoning. And yet there's people all over the place. Well, I don't believe the Bible. Have you read it? No. Well, no. But I don't believe it. <laughs> okay. I mean, doesn't that, it just doesn't make any sense. See, I, I promise you that your doubt will be erased as you daily expose yourself to the revelation of God. Because His Word does not return void, beloved. That's what it says. And so let God speak through His Word. And that spells the end of doubt. If you're dealing with doubt in your life, look at your devotion life. Look at your time in God's Word. The two on the road to Emmaus that we talked about previously in Luke 24. They're walking alone. And they're in the middle of doubt. Things just didn't pan out the way they wanted to do. They're confused. They're perplexed. And the Lord comes along and He opens up to them, it says, the Scripture. And it says, He began to speak out of the Scripture the things concerning Himself. And it says, Their eyes were opened and they saw Him. And then they said this, Did not our hearts burn within us as He spoke with us along the way and opened to us the Scripture? See, what dispelled their doubt was the revelation of Himself in Scripture. And beloved, if we're going to dispel our own doubt, we need the first-hand manifestation of the living Christ to dispel doubt. And that comes through the pages of Holy Scripture. That's why the Bereans in the New Testament, it says they were more noble than others because they searched the Scriptures daily to see if the things were so. See, if you come to church on Sunday and you sit out there and you listen to somebody up here preach a message, and then you leave and you, know, you, you don't have a clue what he said, you don't care what he said, you don't check it out in the Bible, that's not very noble of you to do that. Because you know what? All of us make mistakes. All of us misspeak at times. I've had people come up to me afterwards and say, you know what, you said this, and, and can you show me the Bible? I said, I didn't say that. Oh, yeah, you did. And I go back to the tape, and there it is. On the audio tape, I'm like, wow, I don't believe I said that. This is where editing comes in, you know, and you just kind of dice that out there. But, you know, you misspeak. And it's so blessed, it's such a blessing when someone catches it. Because you know they're listening. They're, they're being critical of what's being taught to them. We're not just a bunch of robots here that somebody gets up here and talks and, yes, sir, or whatever you say, you know. No. We need to dig it out for ourselves. And also, when we're sharing Christ with people, the number one thing we want to do is not point them to a little track, not point them to this or that program, whatever. Point them to the Word of God. Sit down and, and let them read the Word. Even if you're sharing the Gospel with them, turn over to Romans. And rather than you just saying, oh, in Romans it says, open up your Bible and say, you know what? I want you to read this for me. Out of Romans, chapter 5. What's it say there? And just let them read it. Or Ephesians 2, 8, 9. What's it say there? Because when you expose people to the Word of God, it has an effect. So many times we spend so much time exposing them to our words. And it has no effect. <laughs> and so difficult circumstances lead to doubt. Worldly influences, incomplete revelation lead to doubt. And we need to expose ourselves to the revelation of God. And then the last thing today, people doubt because of unfulfilled expectations. Verse 3 there in chapter 11 says, 
ask him if we're to look for someone else, do we look for another? And the reason he would say that is because Christ hadn't fulfilled the expectations. See, when John preached about Christ, here's what he said. There comes one after me that is mightier than I, who comes with unquenchable fire, he said, with a winnowing fan in his hand, and by which he will separate the wheat from the chaff. What's that mean? What's that speaking of? It's speaking of judgment, is it not? I mean, those words just drip with judgment. In other words, the Messiah is coming in holy judgment. That's what John the Baptist's message was. That's why he was always preaching. And what was he always saying? Repent. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. That's what his message was because judgment's coming. In other words, you better get your life right because the Messiah is on his way and he's coming as a judge. The implication was that if your life wasn't right, you'd be judged. Remember the show, Here Comes the Judge? Remember that? I don't know what show that was in, but I just remember that little song. See, Christ was preaching the Messiah, and He was the coming judge. He expected the Messiah to land with, you know, brass feet flaming with fire, and to come blasting evil things with divine thunderbolts. That's what John expected. And here comes Jesus, with a little group of 12 totally inept characters, meekly wandering around Galilee, and John's in prison going, this ends in what I thought it would be. John just couldn't figure it out. See, Jesus was on a mission of mercy where John held a message of judgment. And so he's waiting for the fury and the fire and the flame and the wrath. He's probably sitting there going, when are you going to blast your enemies, Jesus? I want to see this. I want to see when you just light them up. You remember in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, David, there's several Psalms where David just, you know, asked God to just blast his enemies. God, when are you going to do it? Over and over and over again. Or in Revelation chapter 6, where it says, How long, O Lord, how long will you tolerate this? See, he's thinking, if you're the Messiah, what's going on? He has unfulfilled expectations. I don't know about you, but I've been there. I've been there in my life having unfulfilled expectations. Sometimes you're, you know, working your tail off in a certain area and you're thinking, okay, God's really going to bless this. And, you know, I remember as a youth pastor sometimes, you know, working together with other churches and you have some big event coming up and you advertise, spend all this money, you know, and you're expecting a couple hundred kids at this thing and 30 show up. Unfulfilled expectations. God, what are you doing? I mean, you know, we can't worship with 30 kids. Half of them don't sing anyway. I mean, how are we going to do this? You know what? God somehow turns it around. And see, impatience can lead to doubt. What we ex- when we expect divine intervention and it doesn't happen, then we sit back and we begin to doubt God because we expect God to do something. I mean, if there's someone in your life, beloved, who's just this wretched, evil, vile person, and you're looking at their life and it just seems like they live the life of ease. They're always prospering. They don't have a care in the world. And you're going and you're scratching your head because you're trying to live a godly life and you're trying to do everything wrong and it seems like, you know, the wheels are falling off the cart. Doesn't seem to fit. And you ask yourself, how long are you going to allow this to continue, God? Maybe you've been looking for the second coming. 
See, a lot of times when we're in difficult circumstances, we're, you know, the, the phrase, uh, come, come, even now, Lord Jesus, is on our lips, always. Because, you know, get me out of here. I don't, I don't want to deal with these problems anymore. But the days just grind on. And Christ doesn't return. <laughs> and it just continues. And it continues. I mean, some people, I think, have been looking for the rapture so long, they just figure it out it never come. So they change their whole <laughs> theology of eschatology, what's going to really happen. That's why it's good in November we're having this prophecy conference, you know. I mean, we used to do it every year because it kind of lights the fire under us. You know what? I mean, it begins us to think, you know what? Christ could come back. And we're real excited, you know, through the conference. and after. But you know what? As weeks go on after the conference, you know, you begin to get back into the same old thing. Yeah, Jesus is coming back, but we don't know when. So let's just kind of trudge along. You know, that, that should be an expect, we should have expectant hearts. I mean, we should think that the Lord com, could come back any time. He could come back right now. But He didn't. <laughs> so we need to think that. You know, we need to be excited about that. You know, we get people riled up and they, you know, sometimes they go home, put their pajamas on, go up on the roof and they're waiting, you know, and nothing happens. They get discouraged. You know, it's exciting to be around new Christians because, man, they're just so jacked up about their faith. They're just excited and, you know, boy, nothing can hold them back. And yet, some of us who've been Christians for years, we begin to relax and we think, well, it hasn't happened yet. I'm sure it happened, but, you know, it's not really a concern of mine anymore. Well, John had all these expectations. And you know what? Maybe you're like him. Maybe you're saying... To yourself, I wonder if he'll ever come. I wonder if he's ever going to deal with my problems. Is this whole thing true? I think people say everybody has always believed that Christ would come back, and he hasn't come back yet, so whatever. First or Second Peter chapter 3 says this, by the way, concerning Christ's coming. Scoffers will mock his coming, saying, Where is the sign of his coming? All things continue as they were from the beginning. How does Jesus answer this? He says, if you're, if, if you're worried about if he's going to come or not and set up his kingdom, listen to this. And here's what he says. Same answer. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Why does he say that? Because those are signs of the kingdom. All that is going to happen in the kingdom. Disease will be eliminated. There will be a lessening power of death. The world will hear the gospel. All those are signs of the kingdom. Isaiah 35 says that in the kingdom, the blind, the deaf, and the dumb, and the lame, all that will be healed. And Isaiah 61 adds the poor. So he's saying, John, if it's your kingdom expectation that's causing you to doubt, look at these things again. Take a fresh look at what I'm doing. These are all marks of the kingdom. You're seeing them in a preview mode. You're not seeing the whole thing yet. One day you will. But don't be caught in the, the trap of doubt because you'll miss your blessing. And that's what he closes off there in verse 6 with. Don't allow doubt to creep in. Fight off the difficult circumstances. Ask God for grace to deal with them. Fight off the worldly influence and the incomplete revelation and, and unfulfilled expectation. If you're dealing with difficult circumstances, look at his works. They prove that he cares for people. He hasn't forgotten about you. You may think he's forgotten about you, but he hasn't forgotten about you. If you're dealing with worldly influence, 
Look at his works once again. He's in control. Incomplete revelation. Look at his words. Study it. Get to know it. Don't just doubt it. Unseen or unfulfilled expectations. Look at the future, what he will do, what he claims he will do. The best part of this this story here in Matthew, and Matthew doesn't even include this in there, but I believe that John had his doubt removed by the Lord's answer. I really do. If you look at Matthew chapter 14, Matthew 14, verse 12, one verse tells us, it talks about John being beheaded and his head is brought on a platter. In Matthew 14, verse 12, it says, Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told who? Went and told Jesus. First person they went to. Why did they go and tell Jesus? Because Jesus was the most important person in John's life. And they believed in John. And they believed in Jesus. Why did they believe in Jesus? Because John believed in Jesus. And the fact that they went immediately to to Jesus himself is indicative of the fact that John was satisfied with the Lord's answer. His doubts were answered. He got the answer he wanted. Jesus fit into their lives and into their plan because he fit into their, their, their leaders, their teacher's plan. He fit into John's plan. You know, we all doubt, beloved. There's not one of us in this room that probably doesn't go through a day without doubt somewhere attacking us. Second Timothy 2.13 says, If we believe not, this is a comforting verse, if we believe not, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. I mean, isn't that a great verse? That even if you do doubt, even if you are in the valley of doubt and things are closing in around you, you know what? The Bible says that he will remain faithful. He abides faithful because he can't deny himself. See, when you doubt, God will be faithful. You won't lose your relationship to the Lord. He'll be faithful because he can't deny himself. He is affirmed that you are his child and he will hold on to you. I don't know about you, but knowing that... I have a confidence to go to God with my doubt and say, God, I'm struggling in this area. Give me the answer I need. And he always does. Luke 12, 29 says, Neither be of doubtful mind. Pray that we would make that our prayer as we live out our Christian life on a daily basis. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, everyone has... Weak moments, moments of doubt in their journey of faith. We all have struggles. Lord, we thank you for what you've showed us this morning through John the Baptist and his own personal doubts. And Lord, I thank you that you didn't think any less of him because of that. Because you lifted him up as the the greatest man, even though he had doubts. Lord, your word says that a, a sign of greatness in John the Baptist's case was that he knew where to go with his doubts directly to you and help us to know that as well as Paul instructed Timothy may we pray without doubting that you may be glorified through our faith Father I pray that for each individual who is here in this place this morning. Lord, I don't know what's in their heart. I don't know what's in their life. I don't know what circumstances they're in. But I pray first and foremost, Lord, that they would 
push all that aside and look to you for an answer. That they would go to you. That they wouldn't go to a church. They wouldn't go to a, a pastor or a priest. They wouldn't go to a religious person. But they would go directly to you, directly to your word. With a prayer, Lord, show me your truth. Reveal yourself to me in a way that only you can. Show me my need of a Savior. And he'll answer that prayer. He'll bring you to faith. He'll give you the gift of belief and faith through his grace. And for believers, I just pray that as we go through difficult circumstances and we're pressed in on all sides, that we would not linger long in the arena of doubt, but that we would return to you and expect you to work in our lives in a way that would erase that doubt and make us even stronger than we were before. And Father, you, you promise to do that if we come to you with a humble heart and we pray that and thank you for our time this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All God's people said, Amen. Amen.